I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Today I'm speaking with Hamayan Sheikh, CEO and founder of Fetch, a blockchain-based AI platform. On the surface, releasing an episode about the intersection of blockchain and AI is probably the closest we've come to clickbait on this show. But there really is a lot to unpack here. In late 2021, blockchain became the next big thing, despite the tech itself being poorly understood. And now, in early 2023, AI has found itself in a similar hype cycle. To some, the headline blockchain-based AI may sound like the epitome of a solution in search of a problem. But Hamayan has been working on the intersection of blockchain and AI since 2017. And according to his thesis, decentralized AI has the power to revolutionize how we transact on the internet by creating truly peer-to-peer information systems. I have to admit, I came into this conversation with a heavy dose of skepticism, and I asked Hamayan a lot of hard questions. What is the risk profile of unregulated decentralized AI? What will incentivize companies to adopt decentralized AI when they can continue to profit from Web2 data? How can decentralized AI models compete with centralized models run by companies who have access to massive amounts of data? I'm honestly still skeptical. The entire field of consumer-facing AI is still in its infancy. But Hamayan's thesis is worth understanding. It's a bet on the future of AI I hadn't fully considered. Hamayan, welcome to Validated. Oh, thank you, Austin. Great to be here. I want to start with a deliberately provocative question here. Is the intersection of blockchain and AI real, or are we in a hype bubble? Well, the question can be split into two parts, right? So is blockchain real? Does it have a use? And then is AI real? And does AI have a use? And I think the answer to both of them is definitely yes, for different reasons. If you look at what's happening in terms of AI, we already have been using AI, machine learning, for quite a while. So, you know, my background is from DeepMind. Ten years ago, we sold out to Google. And, you know, machine learning AI was picking up at that point. But machine learning has been around since 1950s, right? What's changed is the compute power has changed and the amount of data that we generate has changed. So that's, that's the AI bit. Then you have the blockchain bit, which I think we all know about, which is, you know, it's bringing this kind of decentralization. It's uh, it's enabling unbankables to bank. But that doesn't stop the, the basic point. The use of a blockchain is that it's a ledger. It's uh, record keeping. It's open. Uh, people can interact with it without any centralized control. So it definitely has got a use. So the question now is, and a lot of it is hype, as you as you know. Blockchain and AI is obviously in fashion, but there is a true advantage of combining the two. And we can, I guess, discuss more. But your question to say, is there a real use case? The answer is yes. So Fetch has been around working at the intersection of blockchain and AI. Yeah, so that's the part I really want to get into today, because you know the key characteristics of a blockchain are the immutability of a ledger, and the distributed nature versus the centralized nature of systems. Today, all of the AI systems that folks probably know and use, if you've even played around a little bit with AI, they all run on very centralized operations, right? It's either it's either OpenAI's system or it's Bing, which is licensing OpenAI tech and running it on Azure in a Microsoft-owned data center. And blockchain, obviously, the point of it is decentralization. It is this ability for anyone anywhere to run and participate in this network. So how does decentralized AI, like walk me through what that even means when we're talking about the term decentralized AI. Yeah, sure. So let's break it again into smaller chunks. 
if I say AI and machine learning, that covers the whole spectrum, right? So let's look at what the components are. One is the starting component, which is the data. So you need a lot of data to go through machine learning, to train models. That's one component. And that component can be centralized or decentralized. And again, the biggest entities currently which generate the most data are centralized entities. Uh, not to say that as humans who operate or as systems, they all are under different stakeholders. So it's not really that the stakeholders are centralized. There are obviously multiple of them. It's just that where does the data get collected? So there's the data, which is generated effectively in a decentralized fashion, but collected in a centralized fashion. So that's one. The second component is the model. So how do you take the model and how do you train the model with the data that you have, right? So that model it could be held by a centralized entity. And I think let's define that a bit more. What does it mean to be held by a centralized entity? Again, it could be a private model, which is used for private benefit, economic or otherwise. So you, you have the ownership of that model, and then you have not just the ownership of the actual initial model, but also the train model. So where does that sit? So that's the, the second component. Then the third component is really who can use that model? Uh, how can you use it? Can, can, can just a monolithic centralized entity use it? Or can anybody and everybody use it? So all these three components can have an element of decentralization. Now, one thing I want to make very clear at current point, the systems cannot actually live on the blockchain. It's too expensive. And that's the question I get the most is like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a waste of time because you can't store anything on the blockchain. Well, yes, but it's not all about storage, right? The storage can be, I mean, IPFS storage, you know, you could store it in a decentralized way. You can store it in a, you know, federated manner. It doesn't matter. So, so if I look at those three components and I now kind of take you through like a use case. So let's say there is a car and the car is generating data. Now, let's say there are multiple brands of cars and they are in multiple stakeholders control. So where's the data? So data is coming from me, from you, from you know millions of other people. Where's the data going at the moment? Well, every car manufacturer is storing the data in their own way. They're using it for themselves. Although the data belongs to me, I don't really see that data. So I don't really train a model with that data. So, so one component of converting that whole ecosystem into a decentralized ecosystem where everything is auditable, it's recorded, blockchain plays a very important role. So I can generate the data. I can use the traditional Web 2.0 technologies to store it, but... When the data is accessed, when the data is used, if I can make a auditable record of who used it, when it was used, what purpose it was used for, then you can start seeing where blockchain comes in. You can start seeing where decentralization comes in. You know, we sort of implicitly acknowledge that we exist in a data economy, right? That is the system by which ads are deployed on the internet. All these types of systems all like rely on pulling large amounts of data out from users and using them to do various types of things on the internet. And that, as you're talking about with the model of a car, the value of that data to you as an individual is effectively zero. 
right? Unless you specifically are a very advanced car mechanic, you're not going to be learning any insights about your car based on that. But over 150,000 different data points from a bunch of different drivers and vehicles, you may be able to start estimating things like how often certain parts fail, even before we get into the AI and machine learning part, just on a stochastic model there. Absolutely. So taking that approach and then being able to use a model then which is not just owned by a centralized entity. It might be deployed by a centralized entity, but it might not be owned by one because the model in itself has very little value. It has value, but it has little value unless it's trained. So now if you imagine a, a model which is like a federated learning model, which the technology has existed and it's still, you know, kind of getting, it's still getting developed. However, if you think about a federated learning model, the, the, the differentiator between federated learning and a decentralized learning is that federated learning could be still in a centralized environment, still owned by a centralized entity, but trained uh, either on the edge or in different locations, right? But now if you convert the federated learning into decentralized kind of models, what changes is who owns it, how they own it, and is the record public or private? So that's the difference between federated and decentralized. So now if you have a system which enables you uh, perhaps to deploy the model still in a centralized manner, but use and use the data which is the, or the data points which are generated by millions of users to train that model and but keep a record of that training whereby you can actually remunerate the person who's actually trained it with the proportionality that they've trained the model for then that becomes a more decentralized ownership of that model yeah, so sort of to take a step back here, you know, we've gone pretty deep into the way that some of these things work. On a much higher level, like what is the core impetus behind a project like Fetch? What is its opinion and articulation of where it sits in the world and the value that it can bring? So kind of going out to the helicopter view, all the use of machine learning and AI is to deliver an actionable value. So when you transact either on an e-commerce system or even a search on Google, there is a purpose, there's an objective, and there's an activity. There's an action that needs to happen. And for example, just a very basic example, ordering a taxi. It's an action. You know, you might go to Google to search for the local taxi company or cab company, or you can go to Uber to order a taxi. You are always interacting with a centralized entity and the problem with that is the actual action that you perform requires multiple entities to interact together to deliver. And the whole purpose where Fetch was born was to make that a much simpler process where automation can be carried out and all these intermediaries were not necessary now with the technological development that has happened is to remove those which would improve the economic efficiency and actually the transactional efficiency of the whole task. So just kind of going through it again, it's all about doing action of some kind. But what has happened is the promise of the internet was, you know, everything is peer-to-peer. -peer. You can connect from one website to another website. Then suddenly we changed that model back to centralized and aggregator model. So Fetch is 
objective is to just remove that aggregation and enable people to kind of enjoy the true promise of, you know, how internet was formed. Yeah, I want to kind of dig into that a bit because, you know, one of the original promises of Web 2 back in the day was this idea that there were going to be open APIs and that all these web applications could talk to all these other web applications. And, you know, at the end of the day, there was no technological reason why that vision didn't come to a reality. It was sort of a business use case decision. And then if you fast forward to sort of the 2016 timeline, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was up on stage telling everyone that chatbots were the future and that my chatbot was going to go talk to Delta Airlines chatbot and it was going to negotiate a price for my flight. And, you know, there was sort of this theory of like, okay, well, if the API task failed, then we're going to try and figure out if we can do it by just having robots talk to robots. And I think on the surface, you can look at Fetch and sort of say this feels like a progression of that and also its historical analogies have not really delivered on their promise so what is different about this being built and integrated with blockchain or the state of ai today that makes this something that is worth pursuing well i mean as you know timing is nearly everything (laughs) technologies have existed for a very long time so yeah the um, difference between being too early and being wrong is nothing Yes. So I, I think I think timing is the one very important thing because the timing and the, the improvement in the compute and actually, to be fair, and I know there's plenty of naysayers who would go on about blockchain, but actually the rise of blockchain is what is enabling also, in my opinion, this whole system of bots communicating with each other. In Fetch's case, we call them autonomous economic agents. But the whole objective uh, comes about because you still need a entity in the previous Web 2.0. You still need an entity to maintain these agents or bots, somebody to maintain that ledger where the transactions happen. Uh, you still need to provide them insights on based on which these actions uh, or these predictions, which are used by the agents to make a decision to take an action. All of that can now be truly decentralized. So it's not about, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg said that, you know, his objective perhaps was less to decentralize it. And hence the business model doesn't work because if you try and kind of take 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 the economic value out of the system without distributing it, it doesn't work because you, you still want to kind of carry on doing this centralized mode which actually doesn't enable this uh, smooth or frictionless integration because everybody wants to control their own business rather than be absorbed by one big corporation. So that's, um, again, timing. And also we use the ledger technology, the decentralized ledger technology as the orchestrator. So if you think about, you know, there's there's millions of agents running around, but how do you find them? So where's the where's this Google of these agents? How do you find them? And, and and what we're doing is we're saying, okay, that search does not need to be centralized. It can be decentralized and enables you to find these agents. With, and, and then you have to think about, okay, the agent needs to do a particular task. So there's a supplier agent and then there's a consumer agent. You have to define the protocol and, you know, it has to be flexible enough to accommodate the task that you're trying to do. So that's what Fetch does. So Fetch is building all of these underlying technologies 
which enable you to deliver that. Yeah, I, I want to talk about some of what people are actually using agents and fetch for today. But just sort of to start out, what is that agent relationship like? Is that functionally an API that's been built for a specific type of service? Or how should we think of agents? That's a great way of putting it. So, so if you think about microservices, microservices are developed for big uh, centralized systems where there's a lot of functionality which needs to happen. Um, so if you now think of microservices and you think of bringing them to Web3, then that's what an agent looks like effectively. So you have all these small tasks and all these small microservices effectively, or we call them microagents, delivering a, a single task. And these, these tasks are made up of these subtasks, which these microagents or slash microservices deliver but in a decentralized web 3.0 manner. But we do not believe that we can make a straight transition from uh, web 2.0 to web 3.0. There is a middle ground. So we're following that web 2.5 is where we're going to see the traction because there's a lot of technology which exists. And if we don't use that, we will not be able to get the momentum to kind of transition into web 3.0. So... How are people actually using these agents today, both on sort of the more user side and then on the developer side? If I want to build an agent, how does that process work? So if you want to build an agent, we're going to be releasing these developer tools. We already are releasing these developer tools. You can go and download a kind of a framework agent, and then you can actually deploy and fill it in, write the code, and launch the agent on your private machine on your local machine, you can launch it in the cloud. You can actually deploy it and it gets registered in a central register. Or in, in this case, it's although we call it central register, it's a decentralized kind of almanac contract where you can do the search and discovery for this agent. So you could actually assign multiple tasks, multiple uh, kind of business logic. You can put a business logic within an agent and you can deploy it. And you can do that today. Have a look at our developer resource, which is available on our website. So you can deploy that. And then coming to the next question, how and for what reason do you want to deploy it? So every task has a supplier and a consumer. So if you break down any task, you know, and let's look at DeFi, for example. So there is a service whereby you want to sell something and somebody wants to buy something. So if you look at DeFi and you look at these decentralized exchanges, Although they are DEXs, they still have a single point of failure, which is the liquidity contract, for example. Yep. But what an agent-based system could do is that you assign your request, your task, could be a sell task or buy task. You can assign what asset you want to assign that agent. Then you can launch that agent. And on the other side, somebody could do the opposite, which is, you know, if it wants to consume it, if he wants to, somebody wants to buy the token, they could do that same kind of assignment. And what the fetch infrastructure enables you to do is find each other and carry out that transaction in a much more kind of friction-free environment where you don't have to accept two or three transactions. And just for the, the kind of completeness, it could be a an interoperable kind of solutions you could be you could be on one chain with one token and you could be transacting with another chain another token 
but it's all in your control. So there's no central point of failure. Yeah, you know, it's funny because what you're describing sounds like a very traditional market problem, right? Like the the reason that historically peer-to-peer exchanges haven't succeeded is because at the end of the day, that one-to-one matching is a less efficient process than an AMM clearing or a central limit order book style of clearing. What of that model, like, like I guess walk me through sort of like a non-DeFi use for something like this. I'll just make a point there. So when you do this assignment to the agents, you actually combine that peer-to-peer model with the more traditional financial order book model. Because you now have these this data, which is although the, the tokens are not sitting in a centralized place, you can still create an order book from it. And that's really the key here to bringing those two solutions together. So it's although it's a true peer-to-peer solution, you're still using the the financial techniques which we use in in a centralized exchange today to deliver the same solution. So just just wanted to make that point clear. Um, so let's look at something else. Let's look at a, another service like a taxi service, cab service. So let's say you have you you're looking for a cab and there is an entity which is providing that cab service. At this moment in time, you're going through this centralized entity, whichever that service provider might be, which is the aggregator. And you're registering both your supply and your demand. You're registering in a centralized entity. Yeah. What we're saying is that, for simplicity's sake, let's not go into the technical detail, but you don't need to do that in a centralized entity because uh, there is this decentralized solution where your agent can hold that request, the supply request or the demand request. And our infrastructure enables you to find each other in a very efficient manner. So... You know, if you look at more uh, localized solutions, that's quite easy to understand because you don't need millions of taxis because although we say it's not efficient and it's not efficient because the more data you have, the more drivers you have, the more kind of consumers you have, the more efficiently you can plan it. But you don't need to plan it because that efficiency planning is for that centralized entity. It's focused not on the consumer and the supplier. It's focused on the centralized entity. So when you assign these agent-based approach, then the agents look after the, the entity which has given them the agency rather than this centralized entity, which is matchmaking in the middle. So that's, you know, finding a taxi or finding a service from, from anybody in anywhere does not require an aggregator in the middle anymore because you can just give it to your agent. Hmm. So... On one level, that makes perfect sense. And on another level, the point of an aggregator in the theoretical model is price discovery, right? It's some level of mediation to say, uh, you know, does my agent have the ability to talk to, you know, I'm in New York, there might be 150 different cars at any given moment that could potentially serve me. How does that sort of model work when you're talking about competitive negotiations between agents? If you think about what the centralized entity is doing in the middle, all they're doing is they're collecting data from everywhere and then they're kind of settling at the price. And when they settle at the price, there is a cost to doing this calculation, right? So there's no technical barrier at the moment which stops us doing that matchmaking, that negotiation in a decentralized manner, peer-to-peer manner. So that's exactly what 
Fetch Technology is doing. What Fetch Technology is doing is taking that technology, of which is living in a centralized way, using machine learning in a centralized way, and making it decentralized. So making it so that my agent can and your agent can use the same level of machine learning, AI, negotiation technique, and even the settlement technique, which a centralized entity provides. So that's really the whole point of it. What are the most common operations people are doing on Fetch today? Well, at, at the moment, because we haven't fully released the, the platform for large-scale deployment, we've been kind of looking and testing. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you um, noticed, we, we announced a partnership and a kind of collaboration with uh, Bosch, which manufactures, uh, you know, automotive components. We're looking at, for example, deploying solutions for predictive maintenance, which we kind of touched on. Yeah. So walk me through something like the conversation with a company like Bosch, because I think from the outside, the assumption would be that there are many centralized players in the space that can serve their existing needs and that you know a company like Bosch doesn't necessarily see decentralization as something that's core to its mission. So, so what about the idea of decentralized AI attracted them as opposed to going with a solution built on Amazon Web Services or something like that? Yeah, it's it's not it's not about the actual technical solution. It's about so 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 what does Bosch do? Is Bosch manufactures uh, consumer goods components which go in the consumer goods. So you know half your car is made up of Bosch components, right? So you know you've got headlights, you've got windscreen wipers, you've got all these components. You're washing machines, you have dishwashers. So a lot of these devices that. Bosch manufactures, actually the stakeholders in those devices, once they're purchased, is actually the consumer. So Mm -hmm. Bosch is quite ahead in thinking that rather than trying to control the data with all the data privacy rights and everything, it belongs to the consumer, but you should pass the economic value back to the consumer. We should still build those models. You know, it might be centralized, it might be decentralized, but they still should benefit the consumer somehow. So what needs to happen, and the reason why they're collaborating with us is that you have all these data points which are coming from various devices. You build machine learning models in the middle, which enables all these agents to do these transactions without the need for going into one big centralized entity. So don't get me wrong, it's hosting, for example, is irrelevant if it's hosted on Amazon and Google or a a completely decentralized storage facility or a compute facility. The whole point is that the value chain benefits the consumer somehow. And and I think Bosch is quite ahead in thinking that that's coming. And they want to build systems which which kind of lie in in between the centralized systems and a decentralized system, which is like Web 2.5, where although you're using past technologies, you're still enabling the economic freedom for individuals using, in our case, using the agents. Yeah. So there's such a history of projects, both on blockchain and off blockchain, that have tried to basically create some sort of monetization model for for user data, right? The, the idea that you own your data and that there can be some way where you contribute it back to an entity. And I think the 
Probably the only model I can think of that's really worked are nonprofit research studies where sort of Apple will say, you know, oh, you have an Apple Watch. You want to contribute anonymized data back to help people detect some form of, of large data medical research. And there, there's an exchange there where I'm not getting paid for it, but I understand it's going to a nonprofit medical center and that maybe that's something I feel I feel comfortable with. What about the structure of decentralization and AI in these applications make this something that can sort of survive contact with capitalism, for lack of a better term? I can't see an incentive for companies who sell me a, like a dishwasher to say, oh, I'm going to pay you to give me diagnostic data about that dishwasher as opposed to just taking it. Yeah, so I think that's a very, very good question and one which I strongly believe that we need to be working with. So so if you look at the components, and th- this is that exact point is why we have designed the fetch infrastructure in the way we did. So let me take you through it. So very good point on data. I have data, million of people have data, so what, right? I'm going to sell it in a data marketplace. It's very unlikely. Am I going to stop people from giving me advertising if I have to pay for the product, very unlikely. And that's the proof is in the pudding, right? So no, nobody's kind of mind, nobody minds that whole point. Yeah. If my service is improved, I'm good to give data, right? Sure. So, Or even someone who cares about their privacy, it's incredibly hard to not leak all of your data. Exactly. And again, that's why the model of this data marketplace is flawed, hmm. in my opinion. Right? This, this is a personal opinion. That might change, right? So but but that people are not interested in collecting the data and selling the data so so what are they interested in what they're interested in is it can i get a better service right so now if you take the the same data which initially they are putting back into a centralized entity and i've got nothing against centralized entity they provide a service that's why they exist right so there's value there but you can use the same data which is going to improve the service improves the intelligence of your agent. So you've now trained a model, which is actually giving you a better service. Then people don't mind that. They like that. So now if you think about, let's say, I mean, I'm looking for a plumber or a cleaner or something, and I I just give my agent my requirements and it automatically knows what my calendar looks like. It automatically knows how many rooms I have in the house. But it's not passing that data to anybody outside, but it's using it for my purpose. So and say, and I say, I need a cleaner, and it knows what time is most suitable for me, what type of cleaner. And I just put the phone down, and it goes out in the market, finds me the cleaners which interact. But don't forget, this is all based on you know machine learning optimizations. This is kind of training the models. So it's using the same data in that way where it's not about rewarding the customer with just cash. It's about rewarding the customer with a better service, which they feel they are in control and they don't have to pay the extra 20, 25%, which they pay currently to an aggregator. So it doesn't give them cash in the pocket in the same way as a lot of projects claim, oh, you know, do this and we'll give you 10 cents. But what it does is improves the service using the agents, using this collective machine learning and AI models to train those agents right. and actually enables you to find a service. So if, if your taxi was 20% cheaper, you know, then, then the consumer is interested, right? If I, if I order a cab to go to the airport for $100, $100 
and then I use this service and it does it for me for $80, then you can see a significant improvement in your return. And that's when the consumer, that's when the people start training and understanding what the need and the purpose of this is. Because you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming you're interested in staying on top of the latest trends, news, and more. So I want to tell you about another show. It's called Web3 with A6NC Crypto, but it's really about the future of the internet, future of creators, future of business, future of the way we work and live. It's for anyone seeking to understand the latest tech trends direct from experts with high insights per minute, given your time and attention are so valuable. Follow Web3 with A6NC in your podcast app now. One of the things you often hear when people talk about AI is sort of an accelerating arms race between different builders in the space. Nowadays, it is virtually impossible to launch a search engine because the incumbent players are so far established that, you know, DuckDuckGo has its 0.3% of the market share and we're all very happy about them. But but functionally, it's, it's a monopoly system right now owned by Google. And even with all of Microsoft's money and power, they, they have a hard time getting above a few percentage points on, on search volume. Uh, you know, AI, I think if you fast forward, you can see a world where more data begets better models, which begets better data, which gets into a very reinforcing cycle where, you know, the fear that a lot of people, especially on the antitrust side, think of AI is that we're going to end up with basically one company at the end of the day or one AI system that runs many different things. When you talk about decentralization, I'm not sure that that piece is necessarily solved because it's not necessarily that our, when you're talking about deploying models, that your model could still be significantly better than than my model. How do you think about that as AI becomes decentralized? I think the way to look at it is what is search today and what could search be tomorrow? Rather than trying to overthink the machine learning and AI side of it. So one, search, the, the documentational search or the text search you know, you're not going to beat Google, the, the, the amount of data, the models, the, the everything they have. But having said that, ChatGPT is making like a dent in it. And unless they come up with the better better one, you know, the large language models, they, which they will, and, and I'm sure there's going to be plenty of other players who come in. So the textual search is their domain. And you're absolutely right. Coming in and trying to make a mark here is not going to change much because that's that different type of search. But you have you have an opportunity elsewhere. So when, for example, if you run a scenario, let's say you, you need to uh, find a product, right? The habits are now changing. So if you know this product, you know, even if, you know, in, in your head, you know, this product exists in Amazon, you might go and look at reviews of that product on Google, but you're going to go into an aggregator to buy that product. So if you're going to go and book a, a room somewhere, you're going to go to Airbnb. So if you remember, we started from the same place. It was Google who was directing you everywhere. But that's changing now. So especially when you don't need to do that search, then you go to direct to the aggregator. You, you just request a service with the aggregator. So you don't go and say, okay, I need to book a hotel I'm going to go to Google to search for that hotel, and then I'm going to book it. You think, okay, booking.com is my place, or another aggregator of similar elk is my place. So you wouldn't go and spend time on Google to look for Expedia, for example. You just go directly to Expedia because you know it exists and it does what task it does. So the actionable things 
Google is going to lose out a little bit more on. And also the cost. I mean, the click-through cost is huge, right? Just to get yes. a click-through is 4 to 10 to $100. You know, unless people are looking for textual search, I don't feel that Google will maintain the same uh, supremacy in that actionable search kind of vertical. It will change. And it's already changing. You can see you don't go to look for a taxi or a cab on Google. You go straight into Uber. You know, you have an app, you access that app, and you get the cab. So that's the difference. So where you have a search which enables you to find a actionable item, you won't be going to Google. This is interesting because many of the examples that you've talked about here as methods to bypass aggregators and middlemen are on the matching and the economic piece of it. I think that that piece makes a ton of sense. Although one of the functions of aggregators that I think are are often not recognized as much is both Uber and Airbnb are reputation systems as well. And that when I say to my, you know, automated assistant, like, go book me, even in a very classic sense, book me a hotel, they're relying on a huge amount of external data inputs to say, is this a one-star hotel or is this a five-star hotel beyond just the price, let alone trying to aggregate and pull in reviews or other sort of assessments of subjective quality throughout the system. So in kind of the model you're describing, where does that layer live? So you're talking about the trust layer. If I stay with the cabs model, if you look at where Uber came in, uh, initially Uber's trust model was broken, right? Yes. So it, it didn't start from the trust is up here. You know, it started from the trust is down here because people are trying out this new thing and maybe finding out what's right, what's wrong. So every time a new entrant comes in the market uh, where the incumbent is quite strong, it has to offer something quite unique. So at the moment, you have the owners to do the work. And what you're doing initially is automating that work. So an agent enables you to automate that work. You're absolutely right in the, in the case of the trust layer. But the good thing is that blockchain enables that trust layer to build. So it might not start day one. I mean, you could still pick up the rating, the star rating, and you could still enable the the same uh, techniques that exist already. But what is quite interesting is that when you do transaction on the blockchain, you can actually take those transactions and you can actually enable that trust layer to be built within the system. So for example, you could do uh, self-sovereign identities, which brings trust into the system. So an agent could be looking at or querying identities, self-sovereign identities, which cannot be altered and which have been authenticated some way on the blockchain, off the blockchain. So you can't temper with those. So that should bring a trust layer, which probably even doesn't exist in the current centralized system. Because when you get in the cab in Uber, you don't generally ask for, the, you know, who are you? Do you have a license? I mean, I don't sometimes know. Uber gives you the information, but you don't yeah. you know, kind of get that. But if you get the same amount of information, like you can see, a driver's license of the cab driver. You can see what the ratings look like, and you have a self-sovereign identity which has been certified by a, a local authority. It's no different. So what, what I mean is to say is that the technology is there now to enable you to do. 
isn't that kind of still an aggregator at the end of the day? No, but this is this is exactly the difference because all that trust information doesn't sit in a centralized place. The trust information sits with your agent. They don't just clump it in the middle into a centralized entity. The only thing that the Fetch network enables them to do is to check that and confirm that it works. The, you know, the rating yeah, belongs to you. So you you can take the same rating and you can apply your cab rating to something else to the hotels you know it's like a credit score you can you can use your credit score to buy a car or to to borrow some money or get a credit card so you can take that same rating and you can apply but today you can't take your amazon rating and go to airbnb you have to build your own trust layer there so if you enable this portable trust layer within the agent framework then you can actually use it in many other ways yeah interesting so I, I want to talk a little bit about what I will admit is a bit of an unfair question. <laughs> Used and, to that. Don't worry. <laughs> yes. And this is this is one of my least favorite questions to be asked because, of course, part of the blockchain is it's open and permissionless. But I think the potential risk profile from open, unregulated AI is potentially much larger than tornado caches risk profile or uh, a contract that says it's one thing and ends up actually stealing a user's money or something along those lines. So how are you thinking about the interplay between human nature, AI, potential censorships, and permissionless decentralized systems? I think that's an easy question because there's going to be multiple systems and multiple models which will exist. So one of the key elements of what we're building is this compatibility with many models. So if you if you feel one model is biased or is not giving you a fair representation, you can always change to another supplier of another model. Sorry, let me let me kind of narrow it down a bit. I, I think most of the risks that people talk about with unregulated smart contracts, right, as as a concept, is that it is a, a Ability for someone to technically do something that maybe they shouldn't be allowed to, right? Maybe someone is using Bitcoin to bypass sanctions in a specific area, right? And those are sort of very human problems, right? People use diamonds to bypass sanctions all the time. It's not a Bitcoin-specific thing. It's any, uh, you know, and, and you could make a very strong argument that actually crypto is very hard to use to bypass sanctions because there is a perfect record of transaction history. I think the place with AI that it can feel different to folks is AI has the ability to take agency and to influence the world around it in a way that financial transactions can't necessarily. I'm thinking of the sort of, uh, you know, uh, GRU in Russia deploying bot farms and other sorts of social interference techniques on Twitter. You can you can very easily extrapolate to a world where AI makes that sort of thing a much more prevalent problem. How how are you thinking about that when we're talking about open permissionless systems to run AI on? So if I were to say we're going to build an artificial general intelligence which is going to be unregulated and it's going to be open, it's going to control everything, which is not what we are suggesting, but there are projects who do suggest that, um, then I can see that kind of danger. But there are always two sides, right? So you have less bias because you could 
many people can train it because it's open. People can train it. People can audit it. There is that element. But but don't forget, I mean, you will not have an AI living on the blockchain, which is unregulated. It still will be with some entity. So you can't stop that risk, right? So if somebody in there, you know, quietly builds something, uh, you know, it's not regulated at the moment, right? I mean, Google can build something tomorrow. Amazon can build something tomorrow. Who's going to regulate it? Because they don't even know what to regulate, right? So that risk exists far more on that front because it's not going to be regulated uh, unless a company regulates it. But if the company, if you're looking at something like an AGI, you would never be able to detect it because, I mean, I think the the best example is the book uh, Life 3.0. I don't know if you read it. But, you know, how would... How would you even get to that point? But actually, to counter that, if you build something which is one collective and it's not one big thing and it's in smaller chunks which can connect to each other to deliver a task, but it's not like one big thing which is either built by some entity or built by some... I mean, because don't forget, I mean, even in decentralized space, you have entities, and that's what I was saying. Central point of failure still exists. Smart contract is written by somebody. And if you put everything into that smart contract, then you have a single point of failure. What we're doing is we're kind of completely removing that. And we're saying the AI in a very small form should exist within the agent the agent does its reinforcement learning, but it has a very narrow approach, which is relevant to your stakeholder, which is not kind of all-encompassing. So although these models exist, these are not AGI-like big, huge models. We're not proponents of those. However, just to kind of make the point, which is, you know, AI is not regulated right now. So what difference does it make, to be fair? Because any entity could do the same now and nobody would know about it. So maybe you reduce the risk a little bit by putting it into a public where it can be auditable and somebody can actually look at it and say, okay, this is what it's doing. So if we fast forward a few years, what is that sort of vision of Fetch's adoption look like? I think if you asked folks in the early days of the Web2, Ajax, API revolution, like what does the world look like? You may have gotten some answers that weren't quite right, but directionally there was an idea of what that looks like. What is that sort of vision of the world that you're building towards? The vision of the world I think we have to be kind of chasing even is the the promise of the internet, which is it's going to be effectively decentralized. You can access services in all sorts of ways. E-commerce will change in the sense that you don't need these these big aggregators because that's what the promise of internet was, to eliminate those brokers, eliminate those middlemen, and actually make the commerce more efficient. So we're not trying to solve world's every single problem. But there are problems which I think we can uh, see, like gig economy. Gig economy is growing. You know, Why is gig economy growing if, if the system was right? In the first place, people don't want to be employed because people feel frustrated. People feel that they need to be in control of their own kind of fortunes. So gig economy, the increase of gig economy is aligning up with the fact that it needs to have some decentralization, not for everything, especially not perhaps for financial systems, because I don't 
I mean, again, you know, there, there, there is a merit in having some decentralization in financial systems, but there's the the flip side, which kind of can be dangerous. So, so we'll park the financial side of things aside. Yeah. The future for me is bringing back the promise of the internet, which was we're going to be able to connect with things. We're going to be able to transact with things, automate a lot of the tasks, which are just, you know, silly, which is like picking up the phone to five people to find a plumber. I mean, you know, why do we need to do that today? We have Google, but yet that doesn't deliver that. So using AI to deliver something which was promised to us a long time ago. Hmm. Well, I think that's all the time we have today. Kamayan, thanks for coming on to Validated. That was great. Um, I think it's good fun to have some challenging questions, which I think you didn't (laughs) let me down on that one. (laughs) Well, thank you. That's the hope here. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.